Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Premier Scott Moe is joining us, the Premier's critical of Justin Trudeau's India G20 messaging. The Premier argues damages the... Uh, the, the Prime Minister has damaged trade relations with one of Saskatchewan's and one of Canada's most significant trading partners. Plus, there's been some musing by Premier Mo about engaging the Charter Notwithstanding Clause as far as his government's pronoun sex education for students under 16 and their parents' policy is concerned. Premier Mo, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing well, Roy, and I, I hope you're doing uh, equally as well. I'm doing well. Thank you very much for asking. I appreciate that. Uh, let's talk about the Prime Minister's visit to India, which cannot really be described as a success because I was reading Indian media and they weren't very happy with Mr. Trudeau's presence and his uh, his messaging. But your concern is what the prime minister didn't say or didn't do as far as trade with India is concerned and how that impacts your province. Tell us about that, please. Well, I, I will. And maybe just before I just make a comment on uh, in your intro, you talked about uh, the, the, the federal government, the prime minister announcing uh, some uh, changes uh, with respect to the GST on rental properties, and right. I think that 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 has uh, you know an opportunity, and that's uh, across the country to make uh, some degree of difference. And I, I although we weren't consulted on that uh, to move uh, together, that's something I think we'd have a, a look at here, most certainly in Saskatchewan, and uh, to address uh, you know some of the housing concerns, quite frankly, that we're having here, uh, like they are having in other areas of the nation. Um, uh, they could go further. We have uh, significant uh, uh, challenges uh, in the federal scope uh, in our uh, Indigenous housing in, in, in First Nations communities, which is entirely um, federal responsibility, and we would uh, hope to engage on, on that conversation along our our Indigenous leaders as well. Um, so credit to the federal government, something you don't maybe hear enough uh, from me on, on this show for that that policy. Um, on to the India trip, uh, probably less credit to the to the federal government. Uh, we had a disastrous trip in 2018. Uh, now, unfortunately, uh, probably an equally disastrous trip. And I, I fear this one may in, in some ways have been by design. I, I hope not. Uh, with the pause on the, 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 the EPTA, or the Early Progress Trade Agreement, uh, prior to going uh, to the G20. And, and, you know, listen, I, I can get into, you know, some of the impacts and the importance of the of a strong trade relationship with India to Saskatchewan with 30 or 40 percent of, of Canada's uh, exports to India uh, come from our province. That's why we have a trade office there. That's why we have ministers on the ground uh, annually or two or twice annually uh, quite often. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, to go to a, a, a summit like a G20 summit with not, not a bilateral conversation between countries, but a G20 summit, summit with many, many countries uh, in attendance and observing, and for a uh, Canadian leader to do some finger-wagging or, or pro provide public criticism of the host country, in this case, uh, India, uh, that's simply not the way, uh, that, that's not the Canadian way. Uh, we, we, when we have challenges with a country, we'll address it bilaterally. We'll address it by, uh, you know, modeling uh, what the greater good is. Um, this is historically how Canada has had an influence in the world. And to uh, show up and to blatantly finger wag at a, a multinational convention uh, or, or, or uh, a gathering at the host country, of which we already have a reasonable and strong trade relationship, one that we in Saskatchewan and I, I think across Canada would like to grow, just simply isn't the way we 
we traditionally do things in Canada. And so uh, if, if this is by design, uh, I think that uh, should be tre- tremendously disappointing uh, for, for all Canadians. I know it is uh, for us in this province. How do you see, Premier, how do you see this decision by the Prime Minister to pause talks with India on the EPTA negotiations? How do you see that affecting this country on a national basis? Certainly it affects your province, as you said. Uh, you are the key trading partner within the Confederation with India, but how do you see it affecting our country nationally? Well, I, I think it'll have a tremendous, uh, tremendously negative effect on our, on our country nationally on a bunch of fronts, not just on the trade front, but on the um, the, the uh, number of students uh, float back and forth between India and and Saskatchewan and and Canada. Um, I think actually to 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 just further emphasize the importance of uh, the broader relationship with India. I think the Premier of Yukon, uh, Premier Pillay, is in India as as we speak or was uh, just this past week working on uh, that territory's uh, relationship with India. And so it's going to have a, a tremendously negative effect um, and, and um, on, on, on our broader relationship with India. Um, but I think paramount among that is uh, the, the trade relationship that we have, of which we in this province uh, um, are doing a significant amount of trade with India. That's why we're on the ground with 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 a trade office and with ministers quite often. Um, but we want to expand that into the future, and this uh, you know does have the potential of, of restricting of restricting that expansion. You know, in addition to students, in addition to trade, uh, import and export, uh, we do a significant amount of research collaboration with India as well. When last time I was there, there was a Saskatchewan company sold a thousand air drills um, uh, to uh, a number of cooperative farms in India, and that's how we're sharing innovation and technology. And so uh, entirely uh, problematic and a relationship that um, unfortunately, we in this province have experience on on repairing and 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 working on in post uh, 2018 visit, which was uh, also problematic. And uh, we most certainly are are looking at uh, you know what the impact is here now and uh, how we address it uh, from Saskatchewan's perspective um, and and protect our trade interests in in India, of which we most certainly are. Um, back to the EPTA, mm-hmm. we we have no. Um, explanation as to why uh, that trade agreement, and it's, it's it's an early progress trade agreement, but why the Canada paused that? They've Canada's confirmed they've paused it. They've confirmed they've cancelled their their trade mission to India, but we don't know why uh, they have paused it. There was an FPT with our minister Harrison um, and other uh, um, Canadian uh, ministers of trade uh, in attendance, and no explanation as to why we would pause that agreement. And so I I don't know uh, why that agreement is paused. Uh, and I would hope that it could get back, uh, everyone would get back to the negotiation uh, table sooner rather than later because all trade agreements are positive. Um, we can work on other things uh, as, as bilaterally and, uh, you know, in the, in the true Canadian fashion um, that, we, that we always have um, by leading by example, uh, yeah. quietly talking to other countries. Um, that's the Canadian way, and I would say it's been effective over the course of the last 150 years. Well, I understand as well, Premier, though the federal government had no interest in Saskatchewan and assisting in preparing for the trade talks in India. Here you are, the key participant in the in our national confederation, and yet you were not, uh, when you extended uh, the offer to participate in preparing for the negotiations, you were turned down. This is a continuation of what I've been hearing from you and Premier Smith in Alberta, the relationship between the Prairie Provinces and the federal government on a scale of 1 to 10, maybe 3. And it speaks to a very unserious 
an unserious uh, federal government and being viewed increasingly as an unserious government abroad. And, and that's problematic for, for, for all of us uh, as, as fellow Canadians. Um, no, uh, Saskatchewan and to my knowledge, other provinces uh, haven't been uh, involved in, uh, you know, providing uh, guidance and providing uh, input on the trade relationship, the trade when, when, when they were negotiating uh, the Early Progress Trade Agreement or the EPTA. Um, and most certainly, I would say a, a province like Saskatchewan in a, in a, in a relationship uh, and a trade agreement with a country like India would be able to help Minister Ng in, in, in a large way. We have an active trade office on the ground. We're the largest exporting province uh, to the nation of India. We have opportunities to expand that export, and we have those contacts and relationships uh, that most certainly, I think, would be helpful for the federal government. When I was last in India this past spring, um, we had... Uh, on the G20 grounds when the uh, foreign uh, ministers were meeting. Uh, Minister Jolie was there, and we hosted a Canadian-Indian um, 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 gathering one evening with uh, four or 500 people there. Both spoke at it and, and, and talked and met uh, to many folks and tried to bring that, uh, you know, that Team Canada approach uh, to our, our Indian relationship, okay. and, and, and we just don't see that happening uh, with the current minister. Yeah, it's unfortunate because uh, the theme of uh, discontent, let's call it, between the prairie provinces and the federal government continues. Let me ask you in the minute or so we have left to give us a sense of uh, how and when you might engage the notwithstanding clause in the charter as far as your policy for parents and kids under 16 in school is concerned. Well, certainly uh, not today. Um, the policy is in place and active uh, here today, and, and school divisions are looking how, at how to implement it. We've said we'd use any tool necessary to ensure that remains the case. Um, so the notwithstanding clause uh, would be uh, introduced and, and invoked uh, potentially uh, in the province of Saskatchewan if that was one of the tools or the tool that was required uh, to ensure that policy uh, is active uh, and it is operational in our schools. So today the policy is in place. School divisions are, are implementing it. And again, I would say it's it's an inclusionary policy, bringing our uh, parents closer to their child's classroom and ultimately their education. And we would encourage all parents uh, to do just that, reach out to the teachers, principals, uh, school divisions, and uh, bring that relationship closer so that we can support our children through uh, their formative years and their educational years. Now, we've talked a lot about the issue of rents and mortgages and Canadians' ability to pay for both or either. And then there was this story, which I saw a few days ago, and I thought, I really need to follow up on this. Because it takes the issue of unaffordable rent into an entirely different zone. Think about it. Two-bedroom apartment, two bathrooms in Toronto. Two sisters have lived in the apartment for a number of years. They're paying $2,500 a month. Now, in ordinary times, that would be a lot of money for a two-bedroom apartment, even in Toronto. But it isn't now. But when you then receive notification, and I believe it was through an envelope or a piece of paper, which was slid under their door, that your rent is going up by, hang on to your seatbelt, $7,000 per month. Effective November the 1st. How do you respond? Because your rent now will go November the 1st from $2,500 to $9,500 per month. Remember, that's after-tax money. So you've got to earn about, uh, what is it, close to twenty grand in order to be able to get that $9,500 after-tax. Yomna and Khadeja Farouk 
by the sisters who are confronting this reality because it's ongoing. Yomna Kadejo, thank you so much for coming on the air. Let me ask you, first of all, how are you? Thank you, Roy, first of all. Um, I'd say we're, you know, doing okay, all things considered. We're kind of just hanging on by the edge of our seats because as the story unfolds, there, there are layers and layers upon it. And as you said, it goes back to the bigger issue of affordability and, you know, rent control. Yeah, share with us, share with our listeners across the country, please, how this developed, how you became aware, how you were informed. I can't even say it, that your rent is going up, up by an additional $7,000. How did this go? How did this occur? Right. So originally the increase was going to be quote unquote, a little bit more modest. So it was going to go up by a thousand. And that was because we wanted to switch from yearly to month by month. All things considered, you know, understand that the landlord has their side to it, but we did communicate that that wasn't being done with the proper legal protocol. So, you know, you have to give the proper form, you have to give proper notice. And so that's what we had communicated. And then after that, that's when we actually received the slip. It was slid under our door and that that didn't have the 3,500, that had the $9,500 increase. So initially it was going to go to 3,500 and you challenged yeah. that. Now, the way it was delivered, yeah. the way it was communicated to you, and then you receive the news that, okay, you want to play that game? You heard it's going up another $7,000 a month. How did you react to that? I mean, how do you react to that? That is a great question. I Obviously, there's no perfect way, but this was something that, you know, we were always concerned about because we don't, we live in a post-2018 building. So, I mean, we don't have that rent cap. And we, we had, you know, talked about it together. We were always worried that this was a possibility, but we never could have imagined that there would have been just such a drastic increase. And I personally, when I first saw that notice, I laughed because I thought this can't be real. It was so outrageous. And at the same time, I was, I mean, my head was just spinning because I was like, what is happening? What's going to happen next? I mean, is this, I mean, technically it's legal, but there's got to be something mm -hmm. we can do about it. So, so what if you both, okay. what, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, this, this isn't okay. I mean, and everyone has echoed that. Well, add me, add me to the chorus. It's not okay. I mean, I can't imagine a $7,000 increase, but so, mm -hmm. so you've, you've, you've pursued this. What have you done and what's the result been? Yeah, I mean, our the biggest action that we're taking is really advocating a petition for rent control because this does display and tap into a larger issue with affordability in, in the city. And, you know, we live in a neighborhood where we see every week a new um, proposal for a, a building that is structurally sound where people are living that it's going to get knocked down and turned into a condo and it's displacing a lot of people. And so, you know, the way we've responded to this is we we have to affect change at some larger level. Is there anything in a regulatory sense that you've been able to employ to engage in order in, in your favor in order to challenge this decision by your landlord? We, are, are, yeah. Are, are there rules? Are there regulations in place? 
which will make it difficult for the landlord to follow through with this? Or is because there's no rent control on this building, is the landlord perfectly free to do what he or she has done? Yes, and unfortunately, that's the issue. There are no loopholes really for us to get around that at least we're aware of. Um, that's just the reality is that legally the landlord can do this. You uh, you get along okay with the people in your building. You've been there for a number of years. Um, you're stable. You're employed. You're not troublemakers. And uh, they just wanted, well, not just, but they wanted an extra $1,000. And because you objected to that, I, I guess you became the, the, the objective, the, the objective lesson for anybody else who might challenge an increase, right? Yes. And technically, we didn't. It's not so much that we challenged the increase. It's that we'd communicated that there is a proper legal protocol to this. Right. So we, you know, the way we would put it is we exercise our rights because we had the right to request monthly, a monthly rent agreement. We you know, had the right to request proper legal protocol and that he used proper legal forms in all of these agreements. So the landlord eventually did do that, did, did use proper legal um, documentation to inform you of the rent increase? Yes. What are you going to do? That's a great question, you know, and one that we're actively working through every day, really, you know, we're constantly sifting through our options. Um, we're not quite sure. There's a lot up in the air for us. We have thankfully had a community of people just reaching out to us, you know, asking if there's anything that they can do. And we're actively leaning into that community and seeing, you know, what we can do and, and how we can really make something positive out of this. It's not easy to find another apartment, I would think, and not at... Uh... No, not at $2,500, right? Am, am, I, am I right or wrong about that? You are absolutely right, Roy. So I think we are tampering our expectations and increasing our budget when it comes to that. But the rental market is just so crazy. Currently, because of our story, a realtor did reach out to us and he's been helping us find a place. But one thing that we're now prioritizing is finding a rent-controlled building because, you know, I mean, while we're continuing to really push for rent control for all buildings, you know, as it stands, there is that divide. And so we want to make sure that we're protected. But those are so hard to come by because people are holding on to them for fear that, you know, something like this may happen to them. I'm not the world's greatest mathematician, so I did the numbers in my head and then I verified them on my phone on the uh, calculator. You're facing an $84,000 annual increase in rent. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that's more than a lot of people's salaries. Yeah, an entire family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do, you, do you feel let down by individual levels of government, uh, you know, the uh, local, municipal, provincial, even federal government? We've got the prime minister talking about dropping the GST as far as, uh, you know, construction of new rental facilities is concerned. Do you feel let down by the by the people who have the responsibility to manage our, 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 our society, our, our politicians? Yeah, you know, Roy, you know, while we acknowledge there are many laws that protect tenants in Ontario, and we at least have some of them in our favor, we are let down, of course. We are let down by the lack of protection in a situation like this, because with such a drastic increase, it's really almost just predatory. Um, and yeah. 
shifts the power to, um, you know, the landlord in the situation. Have you communicated with the landlord since that uh, rent increase was demanded with legal papers? Well, we've, of course, given, we gave notice. Uh, we gave our 60-day notice because we just know the situation is hostile and we fear what can come next. And it's unfortunate that we have to fear, you know, living in, in our own place and, and having to move out. But um, we honestly, it's it's been a bit of radio silence since then. You sound like wonderful young people. If I owned an, an apartment building, you're exactly the kind of young people I'd want as tenants. And Thank I wouldn't be trying to make your life difficult. I'd be just glad I had you. Yeah. <laughs> We appreciate you saying that. And, you know, we're not, this is not first time renting out a place. We've had a couple of tenants previously and have had great um, landlords. landlords, Yeah. And we've had great experiences with them. But unfortunately, the luck of the draw wasn't so favorable for us this time. It's not okay that our biggest grocery stores are making record profits while Canadians are struggling to put food on the table. So, Minister Champagne, We'll be calling on the heads of large grocers to come to Ottawa with a plan to address the rising cost of food. And we expect to hear from them by Thanksgiving on what their plan is to stabilize prices. Well, there you go. There you go. Uh, Mr. Trudeau, you could have made that announcement sometime earlier. How's it all going to turn out? I don't know. We've talked to our next guest on numerous occasions about where the price of food is going, what the profitability situation is for grocers, particularly the large grocery chains. But now uh, the heads of the largest grocery chains in this country have been called before the principal, called to the principal's office, and they're going to have to come up with a uh, plan stabilize prices or the uh, federal government will take action and maybe that includes taxation um, certainly includes the competition act being revised and uh, our good friend professor sylvain charlebois head of the agri-foods analytics laboratory at dalhousie university in uh, halifax at food professor on twitter joins us sylvain Thank you for taking the time. First question is, how are things in, in the Halifax area with the storm? Uh, it's uh, it's not too bad. Uh, we're actually in the middle of the worst of it right now. But, uh, but winds are at about 80, 85 kilometers an hour, which is... Uh, which is actually manageable compared to uh, last year's uh, hurricane Fiona. Fiona was really was much worse for Halifax, but uh, people in Yarmouth, uh, southwest uh, in our province, are probably getting uh, hit really hard. Uh, it did uh, make landfall as a tropical, uh, post-tropical storm, so that's that's helping. But still, uh, I think people in uh, in the Yarmouth area are being uh, are being uh, really hit hard by what's going on right now, and new and parts of New Brunswick as well. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very serious situation. Not nearly as serious as Fiona was, but nevertheless, it is a serious situation, and the hurricane season isn't over yet. I'm glad you're okay. 80 kilometers an hour, that's when Nova Scotians raise the mainsail. That's right. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. well, okay. it's, it, here it's always windy. Uh, they say if uh, 
if it would stop, uh, if the wind would stop in Nova Scotia, everyone would fall over. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. You know, you know that line when you're a cyclist. I used to be an avid cyclist, and the line is, "It's always uphill and against the wind." In Nova Scotia, <laughs> that is true. It's well, it's not always uphill, but it's always against the wind. <laughs> exactly. So we have to laugh a little bit. I know a lot of people are yeah, out of power. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's not our case right now. So yeah, we're we're good so far. Yeah, and we feel for the people who are struggling, but once in a while you just have to lighten the load a little bit. What's your uh, what's your sense of the federal government decision to call the CEOs of the grocery chains to Ottawa? You'll be there. You'll be participating, yes? Yes, I, I am. Uh, in fact, I, I've been in discussion with uh, Mr. Champagne for well over a month now. Uh, first time... He called me when I was at the cottage over the summer. He told me what he was planning to do. So I was fully aware of the announcement on Thursday. Uh, I knew it was coming, and uh, he did ask me to be there uh, to advise him, um, essentially to uh, provide him with some data, some feedback. Uh, I'm going to be listening to the CEOs, uh, and I'm going to basically tell him whether or not uh, things make sense. Now, of course, uh, moving forward, uh, I, I do think that uh, Mr. Champagne has a lot on in his hands, and, and uh, the situation is, is mostly political. It has nothing to do with, with the economics of food distribution, really. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, CEOs want their business to be as competitive as possible. I do believe that companies are trying to to compete and offer quality products at a good price. A lot of people are upset with them. 82% of Canadians believe that gouging, uh, that there's some gouging going on. And, and that's why the federal government feels that it has the authority, the moral authority, to summon uh, the, the, the five leaders of, of our grocery industry. Yeah, there, there's certainly that, but there's also a political party, i.e. a minority government that is in trouble. And so political posturing is another part, just part, part of the playbook. I hope something really significant comes out of this. Sylvan, what are the, what are the prices now? How would you assess what the price structure is and has been in the major grocery chains across this country over the last, let's say, let's say in 2023? Well, I, I'll, I'll just go back to Thursday, uh, with, uh, what Prime Minister Trudeau said, and I was really puzzled by what he said. I didn't expect that he would say uh, something like, we're expecting uh, the grocery industry to stabilize food prices. Uh, he didn't mention food inflation, and that's a huge difference. And, and so I actually was able to clarify things with Mr. Champagne yesterday and asking, asking him what the mandate is here. Is it, is it about stabilizing food prices? Because it, if it is indeed about stabilizing food prices, we're talking about price fixing and, and reducing prices, and I'm not convinced that's a good idea. <laughs> but we're talking about stabilizing food inflation. Now, to answer your question, that's exactly what the market is doing right now. So the food inflation rate is now at 7.8%. We're expecting the food inflation rate to be at around 5 to 6% by the end of this year in 2023. We're expecting uh, the, the gap between inflation and food inflation to be at zero by, I would say, April or May of 2024. 
So already you're seeing the market doing its work. Eventually, things will calm down. The FAO, the UN itself this week, claimed that food prices globally are at a two-year low. So you can feel that the entire planet is is in a different place compared to six months ago. Yeah, there's a there's a large food chain, grocery chain in France, which I understand has uh, just issued or is issuing alerts to consumers about the pricing of goods and uh, the the packaging, which may contain less food than it did previously. Is is that just Europe, or is is there you know what's going on here? Yeah, so the chain you're referring to is Carrefour. It's the seventh largest in the world. And uh, so they are looking at pricing and uh, shrinkflation as well. But the government of France basically asked uh, food processors, the CPG companies, and grocers to to freeze prices for a while, I guess. And uh, the approach by the French government was to go uh, after processors first and then grocers after. Uh, in Canada's case, we're going after grocers first. That's a choice that, uh, that Mr. Champagne has made. Uh, but in France, they actually froze the price for 5,000 products, which is a quarter of what uh, the French people are actually eating. So whether or not it's successful, I don't know. But France is a very different market in Canada, very different. How so? You, got op- you have options. In Canada, you're, you're, well, I mean, we're prisoners of our own geography. We're north of, of the United States. That's really where we get most of our food. Uh, in France, uh, you're surrounded by many options, many countries. And so if, say, for example, companies decide to leave France because there's no business to be made there, well, they can just go to Germany or Austria or somewhere else, and but it's still ge- geographically accessible. In Canada, we're looking at kilometers here, and and of course you have many provinces, and many provinces have their own rules. And Canada is an expensive market to to do business in, and unlike in Europe where they really got. They're act together many years ago to streamline many regulations. So trade between countries is not as uh, complicated than, than in North America. So what people want, clearly, what we need, Sylvain, is some sort of, I, I, I don't know if the word is predictability, as far as food is concerned. I, I guess that's one word that could be used. But there's just such a degree of uncertainty. And uh, with the grocers, the CEOs going to Ottawa, you being there to advise the federal minister, and uh, the Competition Act being reviewed and revised, do grocers feel under threat? Are they, I guess I'm asking, are they being fairly treated? Uh, I, you know, like, like, I, like I mentioned earlier, uh, the... The meeting on Monday is is purely political. Uh, politics are politics, uh, and I and I and I suspect that CEOs are smart enough to understand that. <laughs> so, so they'll oh, yeah. they'll be showing up, which is great, and they'll be responding to questions uh, as as they should. And uh, but my guess is that they'll be coming in uh, with uh, with some 
some uh, explanations and, of course, uh, some asks. For example, I mean, we are taxing some food products in Canada. Uh, that shouldn't be happening. Uh, up the food chain, uh, we know that there are some uh, some carbon pricing policies affecting uh, many, many food businesses from farm gate to, uh, to distribution. So why don't we have that conversation? On Thursday, uh, the federal government decided to slash the GST on, on new home bills. Why not food? So those are... I'm I'm expecting CEOs to come in with some serious ask in terms of how do we make our industry more competitive and and frankly uh, it is not the responsibility uh, of our grocers to enhance com- competition uh, they 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 deal with it but the duty of fostering a more competitive market lies with the state with the government uh, and. Uh, uh, which should create the conditions necessary for, for its growth. And I, it starts with the Competition Act. And so I do agree with Jagmeet Singh here. I think we need to reform the Competition Act and give more authority, subpoena authority, allowing the Competition Bureau to get to data to prosecute companies that are, you know, that are committing crimes. And, and that's not happening in Canada. Yeah, could you explain to our listeners and to me how the Competition Act would uh, be employed, uh, changing, adjusting, uh, modifying the Competition Act, how that would be employed and engaged as far as food is concerned? Now, we all know when you drive down a street in any city or town and you need gas and you get to a corner and, you know, on there's four gas stations, one at each corner, and they're all $1.70.1. Or coincidentally, two point three. That's <laughs> I know that's purely coincidental. Yeah, but <laughs> this is where the Competition Act is supposed to uh, play a role, play a part. How would it play a part in the in the food uh, in the food industry and in putting the in, in the cost of food on the shelves for the consumer? That, well, that's that's the thing. So you're talking about gas, but uh, a grocery store carries twenty thousand different products. It's way more complicated. So competition is important but it really is different in the food business uh you want to make sure that you know consumers have access to choice and there are some practices in canada that i think are are problematic like the blackout period in the fall when grocers are asking suppliers not to raise prices for three months well that's that's upstream collusion also we know that some grocers are buying land without exploiting the land they bought it stays idle for many, many years because they don't want the competition to build right next door to them. Uh, we know now that uh, some uh, dollar stores and uh, discount stores are asked not to sell certain staples because they are adjacent to a grocery store, like bread and things like that. So really, those are practices that need to stop. But the other thing, uh, Roy, is that whenever there's an investigation, if the Bureau goes to, say, Loblaws and asks for numbers, reports, law boss can say no. And so the Bureau has to gather evidence some, some other way. And that's, that's really not how it should, it should be. So, so what, so you're advising the, uh, you're advising the minister. If you're advising the minister, absent the presence of the CEOs of the major food chains, 
What's Sylvain Charlebois's advice? Because that's what I'd like to know, and that's what I think should be followed. You're, you're the, you're probably the most credible voice. Not probably, you, in my view, you're the most credible voice when it comes to food availability of food, access to food, and food pricing in the country. Uh, the one thing I will say on Monday to the minister is not to confuse inflation with consumer trust, and I think that's kind of what's going on right now. Food prices are food prices, and, uh, and food inflation is a global phenomenon. There are lots of things no company in Canada uh, control. I mean, lots of things that, that food companies here in Canada had to deal with it had nothing to do with the companies that we have here. And, uh, in fact, Canada was spared. We, have, we still have one of the lowest food inflation rates in the world. The, ta- the, the target, I think, should be consumer trust. Evidently, to me, there is a consumer trust crisis in the food industry. A lot of people are doubtful. They think gouging is real. They think greedflation is real. That's what you need to tackle. And the best way to do it is to make consumers feel protected by a much more forceful competition bureau. I think it starts there. The United Auto Workers Union in the United States has begun simultaneous but limited strikes against Detroit's three automakers, Ford, GM, and Stellantis, 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 at plants in Michigan, Missouri, and Ohio, with 13,000 auto workers walking off the job. The union is demanding a roughly 40% increase and additional concessions. The automakers have countered with an approximately 20% increase offer. When this might morph into a full U.S.-wide strike, and what might we expect from Canada's auto workers represented by Unifor, we don't know. Unifor's contract with automakers in this country expires next Tuesday. And although the union is negotiating only with Ford at present, is a full Canadian walkout of auto workers possible, and what would the impact on our national economy be? Lana Payne is the president of Unifor Canada. She joins us on the Roy Green Show. Ms. Payne, thank you very much for joining us. Congratulations on your um, being voted in as the president of the union. First woman president of Unifor. Well done. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me today. We're in the thick of it here at the Sheridan Center, uh, for sure. Uh, and how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you for asking. When you say you're in the thick of it, what do you mean? We're uh, we're at last-minute bargaining now. We Our deadline is uh, obviously 11.59 on uh, Monday night, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll get to a place where we get a collective agreement with Ford Motor Company, but I can tell you right now things are going very slow and we're still far apart and we're running out of time. So can you tell us what you're asking from Ford and what they're offering in response, just in general terms? Yeah, generally speaking, because we haven't been releasing offers uh, as they have been in the United States, but we have comprehensive proposals, uh, Roy, around a number of issues. Our members were very clear on their priorities, pensions being uh, the number one. Uh, our members have not seen improvements in their in their pension or in their retirement security since 2007. Uh, so that was very clear. And I toured uh, every single plant uh, before going uh, to the bargaining table. And, uh, and I heard it clearly from our members when I did that as well. And uh, obviously wages and, and income, uh, this is, this is not just unique to this round of bargaining. Uh, it's, it is happening uh, at every single bargaining table in, in Unifor now and perhaps with every union in this country uh, when you look at uh, the affordability crisis that so many are, are facing at the moment. And, uh, and thirdly, uh, particularly with Ford, it is 
you know, making sure that we're protecting our members through this EV transition, uh, that uh, there are strong income uh, supports for them while their plants are being retooled. And, uh, and I can say uh, without a doubt that we, are, we, we, we still have, uh, you know, met some resistance from Ford Motor Company on a number of those priorities. And uh, that's a big part of the reason uh, we don't have a, a deal yet. Um, is there any chance, I don't know if you'll answer this or not, but is there any chance that you would work together, work in tandem with the United Auto Workers in, in, in the United States and create a North American labor dynamic challenging the big three? Well, for us right now, we're trying to get through these few days and hopefully uh, get an agreement that our members can support. And, uh, and then we'll make a determination on Monday uh, where we go with this uh, if we're un- unable uh, to reach an agreement with Ford. Our, our other members, uh, we've extended our agreements uh, with Stellantis and uh, with General Motors right now. Our, our strategy in Canada was to pick one company, get an agreement uh, that could be patterned with the other two. Where So obviously our other members are not in a strike position. And you would, uh, you would be in a situation in the United States where they had a different strategy. They targeted all three companies at once. So, so a, a, little bit, a, a little bit of a different scenario uh, playing out here. But the industries, as you know, Roy, are very well in, interconnected. And uh, anything that happens in the U.S. has an impact in Canada. And anything that we do here has an impact uh, in, in the United States. I mean, our Ford engine plants in, uh, in Windsor uh, supply quite a number of, of, uh, of the plants in the United States, uh, including uh, the, the, the fabulous uh, Ford uh, 150 uh, engines. Yeah, and, and the the you know we call them the big three. We've always called them the big three, but certainly the the big three have not done too badly as far as their profitability is concerned in recent years. Absolutely. I mean, really interesting about this, given all of the challenges through the pandemic, and this has been true of a number of corporations, of course, all the supply chain challenges. Uh, you know, we've had a lot of down weeks at some of our plants in Canada as a result of that, both in auto parts and in auto assembly. Uh, but, but for these automakers, uh, they did very well through the pandemic. Uh, they continue to do very well, uh, you know, billions and billions of dollars uh, in profits. Uh, at, this, at the same time, the industry is going through a significant transition. So a, a lot of money obviously has to be invested into that transition. Uh, happening at the same time, of course, is the United States government and Canadian government have recognized that to make that transition uh, successful and to get a share of those investments, they have been, uh, you know, providing incentives. And we saw that with uh, the VW battery plant and, of course, the Stellantis battery plant in Windsor. Uh, But but there's no doubt uh, about it. There is uh, a lot of profits here at the moment. And uh, and our members uh, read the business pages, too. They know what's going on. Well, let's talk about that. Your members uh, rejected tentative agreements, as I understand. Uh, they re- uh, basically, what's happened right now is uh, at the bargaining table, we, we rejected the first two uh, basic economic pr- uh, offers from Ford Motor Company at the moment because they did not meet our core priorities, which I uh, outlined to you. Uh, so we're still at it. We're still bargaining with them. And uh, and we have had you know members in other sectors, of course, that have rejected a tentative agreement. That is the, the that is part of the time that we're in right now. People are struggling uh, all across uh, all across Canada. When you look at you know the cost of housing, 
interest rates are now driving, uh, you know, the cost of a lot of things in this country. And, uh, and everybody uh, understands that we have a, uh, an affordability crisis that people are, are trying to get through at the moment. What about the uh, the labor availability? Isn't that an issue for the automakers as well? There just isn't uh, a, a surplus, if you will, of uh, skilled labor available. It's just not it's just not there across the board. Am I right or wrong about that? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that has been you know front and center at our com- with our conversations with not just Ford but all of the automakers is you know retaining and recruiting uh, you know in the skilled trades but more generally and and that's been a, a big issue at the talks at our talks as well but you know it's it's we we obviously have a tightening labor market here in Canada and part of what we have been arguing is this is why uh, boy the income support side of things when we go through retooling so for example if Oakville assembly is going to be down for 6 months then, then what does that income security measures uh, in the collective agreement have to look like to make sure that, that Ford Motor Company is actually retaining those workers during that period and, and people are not going off and, you know, finding employment somewhere else. And, uh, you know, this is going to be key because we also understand and know that if this transition to EVs is going to be successful, they're going to need our members, their, their experience, their skills, uh, their productivity uh, to be able to make this a success for them. And, and those are the kinds of, uh, you know, clear arguments that we've been making uh, at the bargaining table. So, Ms. Payne, what's the, uh, you know, what's the priority issue for you? Is it, uh, is it salary? Is it wage, you know, wages or is it pension improvement? Um, is it security as the industry moves toward EVs? Is there is that one item, one issue that's a really of a significant priority to you? I would say to you that we have to make movement on all of those issues. That we've we've narrowed this down to to, to those three kind of priority issues, as well as of course investments and in in some cases, uh, you know, fighting for more investments for our plants. Uh, we know that you know we're in a moment in time right now where a, a lot of money is being invested in the industry well over 25 billion dollars in Canada since 2020 and uh, and we know that there's more to come and so the backdrop to this round of bargaining is that for the first time in a generation we're actually bargaining at at a point where the auto industry footprint is increasing and expanding in Canada and and that's a good place for us to be this is a, a strong bargaining position that we're in right now. And, uh, you know, our members have been very clear. They want to see improvements in, in pensions and wages and, uh, and uh, you know, any number of other issues. And they've given us very, very strong strike mandates, 98 and 99% across the board. Okay. Uh, so, you know, the, the question here now for Ford Motor Company is it's time Ms. to Ms. get Payne, serious. May I, may I just interrupt you for a second? Just tell the studio yeah. that Environment Canada is calling. So maybe you okay. guys would answer that question. Carry on, please, or answer the call. Uh, go ahead, Ms. Payne. I'm sorry to interrupt. All good. Uh, I mean, we've been very, uh, very clear with Ford Motor Company that we need to see uh, movement on all of these issues uh, in order for us to be able to get a deal that can be ratified and supported uh, by our members. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.